Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. I'll try not to. You know, you know, you know, funny you say that. There's no chance that I can screw it up today. This might go down as the greatest sermon ever delivered in the history of sermons. Do you want to know why? Because when you got your 92-year-old grandma here... I know I can't mess this up, so this is just, uh, it, can only, it can only be good in her eyes and in her ears, and so this is, no, it's been so fun to be here with you guys, and I hope you guys are really, really proud of your pastors and your elders. Yeah. Watching them in this process and just being a small part of it has just been a joy. I've learned a ton, and it's just, yeah, it's been an encouragement to me, and, and you guys are in good hands. You guys are well-loved. I hope you guys know this, and, and for me and my family, you have welcomed us uh, in, in immense ways and just made us feel a part of the family, and so this is, yeah, just thank you. Um, we're about to get into what is, right, the end of a spring break. The kids go back to school. And, and we're just in this processing season now as we kind of settle into the home stretch, right, as we get back to the summer. And, and, and I think this passage, I hope this passage uh, ministers to you well and, and, and leads you well. But will you pray with me as we get started? God, I love you. We love you. And we just thank you for today. Thanks for letting us be a part of it. As we gather as just this, like this, this church amongst all of the other churches around this globe, giving you glory, Jesus, looking to your cross, to your death, your burial, your resurrection, and the hope that we find there. Um, we are so grateful that you use a collection of sinners like us to advance your kingdom in our own unique ways. We're humbled by this, and we just commit this time to you. Just pray a blessing on this church in its process and in its transition and, and just all the good that you have in store. So we just pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, well, let's get started. So the passage for today, so you guys are in a series, uh, Philippians. And so I'm jumping in in chapter 3. I was supposed to preach Philippians chapter 4 next week, but I got the boot. Um, <laughs> for good reason. For good reason. Um, no, I'm totally over it. And so uh, I'll be here for chapter 3, and, uh, and we're going to focus in on 12 through 21, okay? And as we focus in on 12 through 21, one thing that I noticed about this passage is I, I have to kind of go back and forth a little bit. Like I'm going to have to go back maybe to chapter 1 a little bit, and then we'll go back to 3, and then we'll go back to 2 a little bit, and then we'll go back to chapter 3, and we'll kind of, we'll, we'll meander our way to our passage, and then once we get there, hopefully it will begin to make just a tad more sense, and then we'll, we'll, we'll kind of settle into our verses where I think Paul is going to lead us and direct us for our time. Sound good? Okay, so this is our passage. So once we begin, uh, I'm, I'm going to go back all the way to Philippians 1. 121, it says this, it says, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. Now, the reality for Paul is the suffering is imprisonment. 
But aside from this, though, we're going to step into this, though, in our own sufferings, in our own turmoil, in our own trials. Because here's the reality of the Christian faith. It's not if, but when we encounter trials of various kinds. Like, we can't avoid them. Is that fair, Christian? James. James 1, 2, 3, and 4 go like this. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. Joy. When you meet trials, I don't want to consider this joy, James, right? But count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. And then James goes on to say that when you do encounter a trial, you're supposed to pray, Pray for what? Wisdom. Wisdom about what? The trial. And then, James says, and he gives graciously to all without reproach. So Christian, our reality is is that trials, um, they're unavoidable. I I can promise you, if we all could just, right, say and speak into, and I'm going to give us a moment here at the end where I'm going to kind of confront you with your trial. I'm going to confront us with what we're suffering with and the hardship that we're enduring because, look, we're here. We're here to gather and to worship together and to hear God's word preached, but we're also here because we know we're sick and in need of a Savior and we need help. And so we're here and we're together. And I think Paul has something to say about what we might do in order to endure what we're going through at this present time. One of the things that we do as Christians is we put our faith in something. This something is called the gospel, which is going to be paramount to where Paul is headed. And so we've got to ask this question, what is the gospel? Well, it's a belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I think in the entire biblical text, in the entire New Testament even, Um, Paul gives us the clearest definition as to what the gospel is. I want to read it to you. Just listen. It comes from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3, 4, and 5. We're going to be cruising today, by the way. We're in Philippians, we're in James, we're in Corinthians. This will be fun. But this is North Bible Church, right? 1 Corinthians 15, 3, 4, and 5, he says this. He says, For I deliver to you... As of first importance, what I also received. And then watch this. Paul tells us the gospel. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the gospel. I just read that wrong. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas then to the 12, and then he goes on to say, then he appeared to more than 5,000 at once, and then he says, and then he appeared to one untimely born, right? Paul then says, then he appeared to me. But this is the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that three days later he rose from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. This is the underpinning and the foundation with which Paul is going to teach us how to suffer. It's this kind of a belief. It's this kind of a faith that we have and what we have faith in. So then as I was reading uh, Philippians, 
One thing that I noticed, and, and I read it a lot, over and over, I've actually never preached out of, I've taught through Philippians, but I never preached out of Philippians, and so I just, I read it, cover to cover, I don't know how many times this week, just in preparation, and I think it was like on the sixth or seventh time, eventually I was like, oh my gosh, it's, it's the gospel. Paul, just in these four chapters, is revealing the gospel to us, and so I want to show you, just so you don't think that I'm crazy, and then we'll jump into our passage, I promise, we're going there, but see, watch this. If you'll remember early on in this series in Philippians, um, Paul is, says this, this, this thing. It's, it's kind of crazy. He says in 1, 21, he says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And then Paul was hard-pressed to figure out which one would be better. Then he pointed to Christ in chapter 2. So Paul here is struggling with, well, is it better that I would die? Remember, that's one of the key elements in the gospel. Would it be better that I would die while imprisoned? Because then I could go be with the Lord immediately. Or I could live, and if I live, then I'll just continue to preach the gospel until I die for the gospel. And then if you didn't think that this was odd enough, then he points to Christ. In chapter 2, starting in 5 through 11. And you get this wonderful story. We call it the kenosis or this condescension theologically where, where he, Paul speaks of, of Jesus leaving the right hand of the Father and coming and dwelling amongst us. Why? So that he could what? Die. In accordance with the scriptures for you and for me. So you see this death, it's there. It's present right at the beginning, which is a key element to the gospel. Now I just got to find resurrection. I think I can do it. Resurrection gets us closer to our passage in Philippians chapter 3, starting in 8. Watch this. Indeed, I count everything a loss, Paul says, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You know Christ Jesus, my Lord, by what? Having a faith in him, right? Having a belief in him. For his sake, I have suffered, suffered, the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Verse 9, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. We'll get to that here in a bit but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. There it is. Paul spends three chapters unfolding the gospel through his story, through his life, through his experience, pointing to Christ and his life and his experiences and saying that it all boils down to this, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. So whatever Paul is going through, he's processing it through this gospel-oriented lens. This is how he sees life. that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, 
that by any means possible, I may attain resurrection from the dead. So as Christ has died, Paul knows, so will he. As Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, Paul knows, so will he. Is that not amazing? One, two, three. And then it gets us to our passage. I've got a question for us, though. I want to know how you, you don't have to answer this out loud. I want to know how you cope with suffering. Um, so when hardship befalls you, when trials and tribulations befall you, when suffering befalls you, how do you cope with this? What kinds of steps do you take when you encounter suffering? Do you just try harder? Do you try to do more? Maybe I should go back to church. Maybe I should be reading my, my Bible more. Maybe I should try praying more. I don't know, maybe I'll show up early and go to those classes that they offer before church. What do you do? Paul is going to show us that we might not have to do as much as we think. But I want to show you that if this was your thinking, and by the way, are any of those things bad? Reading your Bible is a good thing. Going to church is a good thing. Praying is a good thing. Attending classes, these are wonderful things, right? So these are not bad things. But here's the reality. We're going to suffer, not if, but when. And when we do, I want to set you up for success, the best kind of success, which might mean getting past ourselves and then anchoring ourselves further grounded in the faith with which we possess, right? In the faith with which we proclaim in the name of Jesus. And so you can throw up the next slide. But the first time I read through this, I'm gonna kind of do some colorful things. I hope this, I'm gonna, I'm gonna help us along the way, but this, this just kind of helped me process it. Now, if, if some of you thought to yourselves, well, I must do more, right? I, I, let me contribute to the, this suffering. Like, I want to step in and, and, and do something in the midst of this because that, that seems reasonable. I actually think when you read our passage, it kind of makes sense at face value. See, because if you look here, it says things like, not that I, I, if you'll notice, I have obtained this, or I am already perfect, but I press on in the midst of suffering, mind you, to make it my own. Can you kind of see where you would think, I, I think I've got to step up, and I've got to model my life after Paul. I mean, if he's stepping it up, I've got to step it up, right? And then he, he goes on. I'm going to kind of skip to some of the blue stuff here for a sec. Right? Forgetting what lies ahead, behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I can almost see this as a slogan for us, Right? I got to forget about it. I got to move on. I got to press forward. I can't let it, I can't let it hold me down. I, I, I got to keep moving forward and it'll get better over time, right? I've got to endure this. And then he says, I press in 14, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize. Goal, prizes, are you kidding me? Trophies, right? This is like, this is the dream come true for perfectionist Christians, right? Like I can do something and I can achieve something and there's a prize even waiting for me at the end. Verse 17, brothers and sisters, join in imitating 
I kept saying in, intimidating. The, so I'll probably say it again. I, like as I was reading, I, Kyle, it's not intimidating. Right? Imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example. So even if you don't have the example, watch somebody else who is getting it right in the midst of suffering and just copy them, right? Figure out what they're doing. And just model their strategy. It seems to be working. Do you see where we're going with this? Or how we could potentially read it? Verse 19, he says, There is end in destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And so, right, I can take it upon myself, and I can say, well, I won't dwell on earthly things. I'll dwell on heavenly things, and this will get me through it, right? I think at face value, I, I kind of understand it. I think we can understand it. However, I think Paul's going to change a little bit of a paradigm as to how we process suffering in light of the gospel. So that's kind of where I want us to go with the remainder of our time. So the next slide goes like this. Gets more colorful. I did green and red for my wife because she loves Christmas and it's March. I did blue for my boys because they like blue. One likes the Dodgers, one likes the Yankees. But for us together, we can, I want to show you something though because see how there's green at the top and then green at the bottom? And then do you see how there's like red at the top and then red at the bottom? And then do you see the blue at the top and then the blue at the bottom? And then right in the middle, we've got these three kind of loner verses that are in black. Here's what I want you to see. I think what Paul's going to do is he's going to chip away at the green and then he's going to chip away at the red and then he's going to chip away at the blue and then what's going to be left is really where he wants us to live. I think this is where he's going to direct the mind, direct our hearts and maybe see what we might glean from that. But I first got to take you from the green to the red to the blue to get to the black. You with me? All right. So let's jump into this green first. So the green, he starts off in 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Okay, I got to ask this question. What is the this? Because he's telling me that I have not obtained this. What haven't you obtained, Paul? Well, just a few verses earlier in Philippians 3.10, he says this. So like literally just, before this, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. This is what he has not obtained, church. He has not obtained the resurrection, which means he's not perfect. The resurrection from the dead, he hasn't died yet, and Jesus hasn't returned yet, and so he hasn't received his perfect body yet. And so Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. And then you drop down. And what does Paul talk about in 21? The kinds of things that take place in the resurrection. He says here, he says, who will transform? This is Jesus will transform. Our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so here in 12 and in 21, you get this idea of resurrection. He hasn't obtained it yet, 
but there's hope that he will. And when he does, he will obtain it. This glorious body. Then we go to the red. And then we ask this question. How does one obtain this? Because he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. How do you obtain this resurrection? It isn't by how much you go to church. It isn't how much you pray. It isn't how many classes you uh, attend. Right? It isn't these things that we merely do. We obtain what we obtain. We obtain through faith in Christ Jesus. And what is it that we proclaim in our faith in Christ Jesus? In his death, accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. What Paul has just outlined for us in Philippians 1, 2, and 3. This is how you obtain this. And so Paul says that he is pressing on to make it his own. Make what his own? His faith. I want to go back just a little bit further in uh, Philippians 3.8. I'll read it for us. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. I promise we'll get to this in a moment. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What happens when we believe in Jesus? We use kinds of words to describe this. We become children of God, adopted sons and daughters, right? We obtain Christ's righteousness so that the Father, when he looks at us, he sees his Son. But one of the things that we could also say is that we obtain a citizenship, not of this world, but of one to come in the future. But when we drop down to 320, what does he say? He says, but our citizenship is where? Heaven. And from it we await a Savior from the Lord. One of the things that I want you to notice is that Paul is oscillating back and forth to present realities but future hopes. Present realities, maybe even death, but then future hopes of resurrection. So that as he's processing what might be suffering, and it is, it's real, he also is fully aware of what's to come. He has this kind of earthly perspective, but also a heavenly perspective, a realistic, situational perspective as to what's going on, but also, but this isn't it. Surely this isn't it. And do you know why he can say this with such confidence? Because he knows this was never it for Jesus. That there was death, that there was burial, but that there was resurrection, that there was new life. And on the other end of that new life, there's an absence of suffering, of hurt, of pain, trials, these types of things. Then we go to the blue. The blue, it says here, he says, brothers, I do not consider 
that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. This is not just a, 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 an encouragement pep talk to say, hey, forget about it. Let's keep going forward. Forget about it. We'll overcome it. Just give it time. It'll get better. No, when Paul speaks of forgetting what lies behind, he's putting our suffering in an eternal perspective. Not to minimize, not to mitigate, not to avoid, not to put to the side, but to just deal with it in a healthy perspective to say this, this suffering, yes, but what's to come? And so he points us forward, straining forward to what lies ahead. He says in 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This prize is the resurrection. This prize is what awaits us on the other side. And then when we drop down here to 18, he says, For many, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame, with minds set on earthly things. What grieves Paul is that some would try to take it upon themselves to fix or to remedy the suffering with which they're enduring. That they would take it upon themselves to get them through, alone, and in isolation, Going back to 3, 8, he says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. I know, we're going to get there. But that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. These are the Christians most to be pitied, that as they process through suffering, they do so devoid of their faith. That as we believe in the Lord Jesus and we become citizens of heaven, adopted sons and daughters, and yet you want to go on this alone? You want to suffer alone? You want to go through this trial alone? What kind of earthly things have you set your mind to? Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And then we get to 15, right there in the middle. 3, 15, 16, and 17. We've worked our way from green to green, red to red, blue to blue, and so it's just focusing, and then now we get ourselves to 15. And then Paul says this, let those of us who are mature think this way. This is a strange 
statement. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Mature. This is why it threw me off. I thought mature was going to kind of throw a wrench into how I thought Paul was unfolding his theology here because I'm trying to move us away from a suffering in isolation, a suffering that we can do on our own, but that instead that we need to be reliant upon faith, our faith in Christ as we're suffering and as we're enduring these trials. And so those of us who are mature think this way, maturity kind of having the uh, standing within the community that it would make sense that you would be thriving in your suffering because you're mature. I was like, well, this doesn't help me. This doesn't help where I think Paul's going. And then I looked. I looked in the Greek, and then this is where it gets weird. This is a strange word. Mature. It's likened to being a cult initiate. An initiate. Being like initiated into a cult, in other words. Initiated into a mystic religion or rite. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a second. A cult? And I looked up this word as to where everybody like in consensus thought that it fit within the various definitions. And it's within this one, the cult one. So then I was like, well, these pagans are going to have a field day with this one, right? To being a cult initiate, initiate, initiate sorry, I just keep messing that up, but you love me anyways. Initiated into a mystic rite or religion. And then it's also used as a word to describe mystery. Here's the thing. Um, how are we initiated into Christianity? Is it by your own righteousness? Or is it through your faith? The correct answer is your faith. We are initiated into Christianity based upon our belief in who Jesus Christ is, unmerited, loved unconditionally. And when we profess a faith in Jesus, what are we affirming to be true? that he died in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that three days later he rose from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. This is what we put our faith in, and when we do, we are initiated. We become citizens, adopted sons and daughters of God. It makes sense. These would be the mature ones. The mature ones are the ones that understand the mystery of their, of their faith. The mystery of their religion is that I'm saved by grace. So this suffering with which I'm enduring, it makes no sense for me to do this alone, but that instead you do so anchoring yourself within your faith, your belief in who Jesus Christ is. Which is also interesting because then what do we do once you become a believer? You go be what? Baptized. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But what is so symbolic about baptism is that what? It's gospel-centric, right? What do we do when we baptize? We take somebody, we dunk them into the water, the death, right? Burial, and the resurrection. This is this mystic rite with which we participate in as followers of Jesus. And those whom have been baptized in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, it makes no sense why you would lean on your own understanding in order to overcome whatever suffering might have befallen you. So the next book over is Colossians. I promise we're not going there. But read it. 
read it this week. Because what Paul does then in Colossians is it's one short but profound, intricately woven theological story about baptism. And the real implications it has for us as believers and the effects that it has upon our life. Read it. I promise. But I want to go backwards. Let those who are mature think this way. I want to go back to the beginning of Philippians. Only, he says here in 127, only let your manner of life be worthy of the what? Gospel of Christ. I'll read it again. He begins this letter saying, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let those of us who are mature think this way, that what is worthy in this life is a life set upon the gospel of Christ. Verse 27 continues, so that whether I come and see you or, an absent, or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened by or in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation that comes from God. Here's one of the realities for us as Christians. When you believed in the gospel, you were saved. Eternally, you were set apart. You are God's child. Nothing can ever snatch you out of the hands of God. Right, so the gospel saves us in an eternal perspective, assuring that our heavenly abode is in heaven with God forever. But here's one other thing that the gospel does. In the midst of the here and the now and the suffering that we endure, the gospel saves us from that too. It strengthens our faith in those precious moments of suffering and hardship and hurt and pain and trials. Verse 29, 1, Philippians 1, 29, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And so James says, look, it's not if, but when you suffer. Consider it a joy. Paul is saying, look, the reality of being a Christian is not just if you suffer, but when you suffer, I need you to understand something. It makes sense if you understand the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for your sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that three days later he rose from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. And so it continues, he says, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will also reveal it to you. We talked in weeks and probably months past since we were last together in a prayerful way about the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. I do believe the Holy Spirit will help us to understand when we're attempting to endure the suffering on our own. God is gracious to us in this way, he says in 16, he says in 3.16, he says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. And then he says, brothers and sisters, join in imitating me. 
and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. This is why then we have to go back to, to Philippians 3, 2. Because brothers and sisters, join in imitating me. He gives us this example of himself. And watch how he speaks of himself this way. In Philippians 3, 2, he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, Paul says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, he says. And then he gives you examples. Examples of if anybody wanted to endure suffering on their own accord, what Paul is saying is, is I have the street cred to justify it. And so he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law. He says a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law blameless but whatever gain i had i counted as loss for the sake of christ it wasn't worth it indeed i count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing christ jesus my lord for his sake i have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that i might gain christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Look, he's saying, brothers and sisters, join in imitating me. It's not worth it to do this on your own accord. It's not spiritually edifying. It doesn't draw you closer to the Lord. It will leave you wanting. It'll leave you questioning doing this on your own, but that instead, what has given him the most strength in his life isn't his resume, it isn't what he's accomplished, it isn't who he is spiritually, but that it depends on faith. Faith in what? The gospel. Here's one of our realities. What's this one? Here's one of our realities. When you become a Christian, when you became a Christian, did life get easier? No. When you became a Christian, did suffering end? Did hardship stop? Did difficulties, trials, did these things all just go away because like Satan knew, like, oh, they're a Christian now. I can't, I can't possibly attack them now. No, we laugh. Like literally, it causes us to laugh. I would only be setting you up for failure. You would only be setting somebody up for failure to convince them that once they become a believer, that things get easier. It's not a question of if, but when we sin. This kind of tells the whole biblical story if you think about it. I would say like one of the great 
meta narratives, like one of the threads that you could weave from beginning to end is one of suffering, right? Is one of hardship. So Genesis 1-1, let's just kind of think about this for a moment. Genesis 1-1 through Genesis 3-5 is this glorious time in which the fall has not occurred, sin does not affect us, total depravity has not affected us, and so we're dwelling with God as it was meant to be. Then Genesis 3-6 happens, right? The fall occurs and everything changes. I've always kind of liked to think of it in this kind of spiritual sense of these tectonic plates of life just shift causing a massive earthquake, changing our relationship with God. That's in Genesis 3.6. That's a while ago. Then you peel to the right of your Bible all the way to Revelation 20, and guess what? We're basically dealing with a time period in which trials, it's not if but when, we're trying to figure out how do I dwell with God in the midst of this suffering and death and hardship and trials. And then you get these two chapters at the end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, where you get the new heaven and the new earth and the restoration of all things, the resurrection, and we dwell with God bodily for all of eternity. But if you really think about the whole Bible, there's only um, five chapters in there which speak to this kind of a reality 1, 1 through 3, 5 in Revelation 21 and 22, everything else in the middle, this is what Paul has in mind. He's trying to help us figure out how do you suffer because it's unavoidable. And the best way to suffer, even though this wasn't the way it was supposed to be, the best way to suffer is being wholly dependent upon our faith in Christ. As Jesus becomes our model, not just of suffering, but of life after and so I, I, I return, and this is where, where we're going to begin to conclude our time. I want you guys to think about what it is that you're suffering from. I want you guys to think for a moment, again, we're not saying these things out loud, but think, think. What, what hardship is going on? What trial is going on? What are you suffering from? Do you got it in your mind? Here's my next thought. Well, how are you coping with it? Are you coping it on your own, like through your own means? Are you tackling this as an issue that you've got under control? Are you tired yet? Because I think there's another way to endure the suffering. If truly the fall has occurred, which it has, here's one of the realities about suffering and trials. Nothing that I've said this morning alleviates or eradicates the trial or the suffering. It doesn't go away. We're just figuring out how do, we, how do we live in the midst of it. And not just live, but thrive relationally between us and God and us and others. Will you pray with me?
So you bow your heads, close your eyes. It's been a little bit since we've been together, but this is how I enjoy ending uh, times together because, look, it's one thing just to say these things and to hear these things, but then I want you guys, I want you guys to pray. And I kind of have two things in mind as you're, as, your, as your head's bowed and your eyes are closed, and this is purely from the standpoint of just removing the distractions, but one of the, there's one of two things that I want you to do during this, these next few moments. One is I want you to be honest before the Lord as though he doesn't already know. I want you to be honest before the Lord, and I want you to say, Lord, I'm so sorry that I've actually attempted to manage this suffering on my own. Would you please forgive me? And, and, and guess what? He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and then to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So he will. He will forgive you. But I want you to pray this and I want you to ask for forgiveness. And then the, the second one, the second prayer that I would like you to do then is I want you then to name this struggle, name this trial, name this suffering. And then I want you to say, and Jesus, um, would you join me in it? I invite you into this with me. Would you comfort me? Would you walk with me? Would you protect me? Would you remind me of who you are? And so pray these things. Pray these things now. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.